Hey friends, Aaron here. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. Just a warning that in this sermon, I challenge the idea of penal substitutionary atonement and present another way to view the crucifixion. Now, in traditional seminary experiences, students are often taught the different ways cultures and denominations view the crucifixion. And this isn't something pastors normally preach for whatever reason. But if you've heard me preach before, you already know I'm not your average pastor. So before you listen to this, just know that this may rearrange the furniture in your head and spiritual belief system. And if you would like more resources as you explore this idea, um, please check out the links in the description of this episode and and there will be links there. Thanks so much for listening and talk soon. Um, it's so great to be back here with you all. Again, my name is Erin Dooley, and my pronouns are she, her. Um, before I begin my official introduction, I just wanted to shout out Tina because she held it down last week and preached her heart out, <laughs> and she did a phenomenal job. I, I listened to your message this morning. I didn't want to tell you while you were rehearsing, but it was awesome, and we, we just say as a collectively as a community, thank you for leading us in song and also pastoring us and preaching to us and teaching us, so thank you. Yes, yes, the love is felt. But as always, I'd like to begin with a land acknowledgement to honor the native people that existed here before us. I honor the first peoples of current day downtown Phoenix, the Thana Otham Nation. In the words of Lisa Sharon Harper, they were and are here. We see you, we honor you, and we thank you for laying foundations of harmony, balance, truth, and honor. Thank you for stewarding this land where creator settled your people. We bless you, we bless your elders past, present, and emerging. So, your girl is officially 34 years old. Yes, I am. Celebrated my birthday. And for my birthday, all I wanted to do was experience something. I think I've moved into an era of life where experiences are almost more valuable than gifts. And so for this birthday, I decided to bring Kendall, my husband, to Chicago with me, the place that I was born and raised. And I wanted to almost re-experience Chicago from a new lens as a new person because who I was several years ago is not who I am today. Chicago is where my parents were born and raised. Chicago is where they met in college at Northwestern University. My grandparents on both sides also traveled to Chicago from Mississippi during the Great Migration. So Chicago carries a lot of history for me. It's where a major part of my story begins. And over the last few years, I've dug my hands deep into the roots of my family history. So when Kendall and I went to Chicago, I was excited to be hosted by the oldest living relatives on my mom's side, Uncle Boozy and Auntie Pat. Yes, that is his name. He's a uncle of many names, actually. And when I say they hosted us, I mean they really hosted us. We stayed in their 100-year-old home with original carpet and drapes. And every morning was a delicious home-cooked meal for breakfast, breakfast. And every night we had another delicious meal for dinner. And I'm talking about smothered chicken and gravy, corn on the cob, like stuff from the local farmer's market. I'm like, this is what it was like for my parents, you know? And the walls of their home carried with it a myriad of memories. Family members that have passed have stayed there. 
eaten there, played there, slept there, cried there. Being that most of my growing up was actually in the suburbs of Chicago, it was incredibly special for me to have a South Side experience. I felt like I was experiencing Chicago the way my mom and dad experienced it. The smells, the food, the struggles, the joys, the music, the summer breeze, and porch side observations. My 84-year-old great uncle, who like I said has many names, Uncle Boozy, but people call him Jimmy, Mo, Pomo, Boozy, Boo Boo, but I just call him Uncle Boozy. And Kendall and I sat with him on the porch as he shared stories of what it was like sharecropping in Mississippi. He said they didn't make any money because all of the money went to the white folks that owned the land. And he said that they were so poor, their wooden shack home had no furniture. They had no electricity. They slept on the floor day and night. It was quite miserable. They literally had nothing. And one day he said, he sat on the porch of that shack home and said, I got to get the hell out of here because there is nothing for me here. And on, in the middle of the night, one day he escaped with a friend and he hitchhiked a ride in the middle of the night. His friend actually said, so here's the plan. When it's pitch black outside, I'm going to pull up the car blink the lights, and when they blink three times, that's when you know you get in the car and that's when we're gonna make our way to Chicago. So he literally escaped in the middle of the night. And with stories like these, my family, aunts, uncles, cousins, breaking bread, hugging, laughing, and sharing space, this trip was truly one of my favorites. Our Chicago itinerary included Kendall and I joining my Auntie Glenda, who is my dad's younger sister, along with her church, St. Sabina as they marched for peace from gun violence on the streets of the south side of Chicago. It's actually why I'm wearing this shirt today. Now, I had always known my auntie went to this church, St. Sabina, that was pastored by a white man. And I never knew or understood why she was going to church pastored by a white man, because I know my auntie Glenda. She's very black, blackety black, black, black type of person. And I didn't understand it until I visited her church and met her pastor for myself. This 74-year-old white man is no ordinary fellow. In fact, he is Father Michael Flegger, who has pastored this non-traditional, spirit-filled, ton-talking, justice-centered, black activist, liberation, celebrating church on the South Side for more than 40 years. He was also mentored by the great Martin Luther King Jr., and has historically been a political agitator, truth teller, advocate, activist, and ally. So when I tell you this Catholic church with this Catholic priest was not ordinary, I really, really mean it. At the entrance of their grand church and cathedral, your eyes were immediately drawn to this piece of art that symbolizes a young black girl having her heart ripped from her chest by what appears to be a police officer with a gun. And at her feet are the names of young boys and girls, women and men, non-binary women and men alike, who have lost their lives to gun violence in their neighborhood. And the inside of this church also has what felt like a 50-foot mural of black Jesus extending his arms for an open embrace. 
And this church during the summer hosts a march for peace from gun violence every Friday during the summer. Their church community is escorted by local police in a big truck pumping music that preaches truth, safety, courage, and love. I have never seen anything like it. And together we marched for two miles and I watched the 74-year-old white priest run up to every person he saw and dab them up like he was from the hood. And he prayed for those who asked for prayer and he passed out material with practical ways to resolve conflict, local job opportunities listed, and he even gave out McDonald's gift cards to kids. It was a sight to behold, truly. I literally felt like I was watching a movie. I've participated in many marches, but this one was so powerful because this march was in the place where I'm from. This march is one that my grandmother would have marched into. This was a march of solidarity. It was moving to walk on the very streets many young people have lost their lives with no explanation, no detectives working on their cases, no publicity, no media, no justice. As Kendall and I walked with the St. Sabina community, we felt emotional walking alongside my cousin, Jerice, who also lost her son to gun violence just one year prior while she was participating in the peaceful protest against gun violence. I was trying to take in the cinematic joy of the children dancing to the music, peeking through their blinds, smiling through their windows, dancing on their porches, honking their horns, and waving with us in solidarity saying, yes, we are with you, we want peace too. When my cousin Jerisa's arms got tired from holding up the sign about her son, my Auntie Glenda, Kendall, and myself took turns holding it with her. Every moment of this march felt like an act of solidarity, south side solidarity. I was seeing, smelling, and feeling the difficult truth that systemically white supremacy has perpetuated violence in our neighborhoods, which has forced black and brown people out of their own neighborhoods into white neighborhoods where they are also still experiencing violence. I was experiencing the harsh reality that these are the spaces and places my parents didn't want us to experience. Not because they wanted to separate us from our culture and story, but because they didn't want us to see the pain that they saw. The violence that they witnessed. The killings that they heard about. This trip allowed me to be drenched into the roots of my family history and my family's story, and I was honestly just so grateful to be there. I must say it was also ironic to be escorted by police for this march because they are also responsible for the violence that we were protesting against. My body felt the irony as we were being escorted and somewhat protected by police while simultaneously blasting music with lyrics about police brutality, freedom, and love. Oh, the irony. So when I tell you this felt like a movie, it was truly cinematic. What I loved most was that there was no heavy publicity, no news, no camera crew, nobody trying to make a big deal about it. It was just people walking around, putting up the peace sign, and sharing the love of Jesus through presence, acknowledgement, and joy. The greatest witness, St. Sabina, 
could be to each other and to the people in their neighborhood was a witness of solidarity. And Jesus also understood that the greatest thing he could do for the people who experienced the most brutal forms of violence was to stand in solidarity with them as well. Our passage tonight is Matthew 16, 21 through 28. It's a, a passage where Jesus predicts his death. And in verse 21, it reads this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter then took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to all of his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of being together the gift of reading scripture, the gift of observing the life of Jesus. We thank you for what will be preached tonight and the things you've been stirring in my heart. I pray that they would stir the hearts of the people that hear them. And may we be inspired to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. Amen. Jesus understood that his crucifixion was an act of solidarity. New Testament professor and womanist theologian, Mitzi J. Smith says this, how does a revolutionary leader prepare a colonized people for the death of their Messiah? Jesus bluntly informs his disciples that some of their influential religious or community leaders, the elders, chief priests, and scribes, will inflict great violence upon him and kill him. The chief priests and elders will conspire with Caiaphas, the high priest, to arrest and kill Jesus. And Judas, a member of Jesus' inner circle, together with a sword and club-carrying mob, will join the conspiracy. Religion has never been free of political intrigue and violence. Even religious men and women mesmerized by power and privilege will annihilate persons who in any way threaten to diminish their position and advantage. Perhaps the chief priests, elders, and high priests, despite also being colonized subjects of the Roman Empire, have positioned themselves to partake of the spoils and privileges of empire. Perhaps they have convinced enough 
of the masses of the ordinary poor people to act contrary to their own best interests and to join in a cause that favors only the rich and powerful. The more I study liberation theology, the more I understand that the way we view the death of Jesus determines the way we follow Jesus. I'll say that once more. The more I study liberation theology, the more I understand that the way we view the death of Jesus determines the way we follow Jesus. If we view the death of Jesus as a violent, necessary suffering and bloody, then we leave room to make excuses for Christians who follow Jesus in a way that is violent, bloody, and excusing suffering as necessary. Latino professor, author, and scholar activist, Dr. Miguel A. De La Torre wrote a powerful article called, What If Crucifixion Is Not About Salvation? I've summarized his thoughts for you here. I really think they're worth sharing. In the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury introduced a new interpretation of Jesus' crucifixion which replaced an earlier idea that it was a ransom paid to Satan. Anselm proposed the satisfaction theory where Jesus' death wasn't a ransom, but a way to satisfy an angry God due to human sin, requiring the shedding of innocent blood. A contemporary of Anselm expanded this view by emphasizing God's love in sacrificing his only child for atonement and reconciliation, highlighting the depth of a father's love through a torturous and bloody act. Now, in this interpretation, God is somewhat symbolized as a snowflake and cannot tolerate sin. So when Jesus bore all the world's sins on the cross, God, in fact, in this interpretation, is seen as if he turned away, leading Christ to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, unfortunately, Christianity emphasizes salvation through bloodshed, where humans can escape God's wrath by accepting Jesus as their sacrificial substitute, And without this acceptance, they face God's full wrath on their sins. I know this is a new thought, so bear with me. But whether we like it or not, this view of Jesus' death has fueled the fervor of some Euro-Christians leading to crusades, religious wars, persecutions, inquisitions, witch trials, colonialism, and the genocide of non-believers, slavery, and even the Holocaust. Christianity's fascination with blood made it the cause for the most for most of the world's bloodletting. I'll say that again. Christianity's fascination with blood has made it the cause for most of the world's bloodletting. The truth is there is nothing redemptive in suffering. And here is the danger. When Euro-Americans believe this, especially those complicit with institutional racism, classism, sexism, and heterosexism, they insist suffering and servitude is expected from those on their margins. So maybe the question is not, 
why Jesus had to be crucified. Because that question leads to the glorification of suffering as redemptive. But maybe, just maybe, the question is, what do we do with the fact that religious and political leaders tortured and killed Jesus? Is it possible that our focus on Jesus' crucifixion leaves us blinded to the reality of the violence from the people that killed him? When then culturally, which then culturally perpetuates our fixation on those being oppressed as a form of rightful servitude instead of critiquing and calling out the systems that have inflicted the violence. This cultural fixation on the glorification of suffering is what led President Joe Biden to then be corrected by black activists when he thought that George Floyd was martyred instead of murdered. The fixation should always be on the systemic problems that cause the violence, not the glorification of those who unjustly receive it. If this Jesus has become complicit with today's religious and political authorities who support white Christian nationalism before a silent God, then it becomes the theological work for today's crucified people to resonify the Jesus of the dominant culture and reject their bloody theology. The cross is what it is, a symbol of sadism and evil. What if Jesus and his death is no more redemptive than his birth, his life, his teachings, his miracles, or his parables? For those who believe if he was instead to have died of old age, then his existence would still have been redemptive. Crucifixion's only signification is the unjust death of a just person at the hands of religious and political leaders. The only significance of gun violence is the unjust death of just persons, black and brown, boys and girls, young and old at the hands of religious and political leaders. Now I say all this not to project a thought that you must receive or must believe. Because I realize that we all have grown up in many different types of churches, believing many different types of things. But I'd like to propose to you a new thought. What if Jesus' death neither pays a ransom nor is a substitution for us? What if crucifixion is an act of radical solidarity specifically Jesus' choice to accompany in solidarity those dying on the crosses of religious and political oppression. Perhaps this is why Jesus rebuked Peter, because Jesus understood if he was to truly liberate all people, he must stand in solidarity with those experiencing the most brutal forms of violence at the hands of religious and political oppression. Rather than romanticize the disenfranchised by claiming that they freely suffer and freely serve, Jesus actually shared their suffering. He shared their plight so that they have someone who truly understands their pain. And so that God, if the incarnation is believed, can learn what it means to be human in an unjust world.
So to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus is an invitation not to suffer, but to stand in solidarity with the oppressed of the world, a solidarity which might actually cost us everything. Friends, as Jesus followers and spiritual people, may we continue to stand with those whose backs are against the wall. May we continue to sit on the streets with those who have no food. May we continue to break bread with those who have no home. And may we share spaces, places, homes, tables, and houses of worship to humanize those that have been dehumanized. Amen. I'd like to take a moment and just practice stillness. Because sometimes when you hear something new, you're like, let me just think about that. <laughs> you know, again, like, there's no pressure to accept this thing. I think our, as especially at the, as this community, we are ever evolving, ever deconstructing, ever letting go and ever holding on, ever deconstructing and then rebuilding, right? And we do that together. And so permission to think and ponder and wonder and ask questions and sit with it. And so for the next few moments, let's just sit in stillness and reflect. And I'll let you guys come up and, and we'll sing a song real soon. Lord Jesus, what do you want us to know? What do you want us to do with the things we've heard today? For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.